Hey, fellow foodies, this is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. We've dedicated a lot of episodes to discussing the foods that we eat and where they come from, but we really haven't spent that much time thinking about what happens after those delicious morsels go down the hatch. How does the gut work? What role does the microbiome play in shaping the outcomes of, of what happens to that food? And what about fiber? How important is that to our diet and to our health? And lastly, there's the somewhat embarrassing but absolutely critical topic of bowel movements. Like, what do those actually say about our health? And for anyone that has ever experienced the discomfort of being constipated or having loose stools, this is something that we all deal with and is heavily influenced by what we eat. And so I'm really excited to have a very special guest on the show today. I have Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or Dr. B. He is an award-winning gastroenterologist who's internationally recognized as a gut health expert and um, has also been noted by the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, USA Today, um, and he's also an indie-bound best-selling author of Fiber-Fueled and the Fiber-Fueled Cookbook. So there's two really great books that he has out. Um, Will has an intense passion for plants and helping people. He sits on the advisory board or the scientific advisory board and is the U.S. medical director of ZOE. He's authored more than 20 articles that have been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals and has more than 40 presentations at national meetings. He's also presented to Congress and the USDA and has taught over 10,000 students how to deal with and optimize their gut health. Um, Will finished his bachelor's at Vanderbilt um, University, and he has his medical degree from Georgetown and a master's in clinical investigation from Northwestern. So he's uber qualified to talk all about this gastroenterology um, aspects of what happens in the diet. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina with his wife and kids, and you can find him on Instagram at the Gut Health MD or Facebook at the Gut Health MD and his website at theplantfedgut.com. And if you do, um, follow things on social, definitely check out his social handles because he always has a lot of really great content um, posted regularly. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and it's, it's great to meet you. Oh, thank you for having me. And I feel a bit exposed. I was trying to hide the fact that I'm a nerd, but now it's out in the open. So I guess I'll just have to accept that. That's great. Well, this is a show for nerds, right? I'm super nerdy. <laughs> <and> so <laughs> it's like, so your nerds unite and we share our kind of funny, um, uh, insights into into the body and into the ecosystems that that fuel um our diets so yeah you're in the right place there we go <laughs> great well let's start with just some of the basics i'd like to kind of open up episodes with that so you're a gastroenterologist can you tell us a little bit about what does a gastroenterologist study and kind of how does that go into how does that tie into your work on the diet and writing cookbooks and kind of teaching people about the role of diet and health Sure. Well, first of all, this place that I find myself in as an author was never something that I intended to do. It was never a dream of mine. I, I really it just kind of it's something that happened. And mm -hmm. but my dream was to be a doctor and to help people. And initially, I thought I would be a pediatrician, but I ended up falling in love with gastroenterology during my third year of medical school, which was back in 2004. 
And um, gastroenterology is a special, uh, a specialized area of medicine. So I'm also board certified as an internal medicine doctor, and I could have practiced as a, you know, a primary care doctor or as a hospitalist. But then I continued my training and my education for an additional four years uh, to become a gastroenterologist. And gastroenterologists, we are considered the specialist when it comes to anything involving digestion. So in a way, my expertise really starts at the throat. And it moves through just kind of moving through the body. It moves through the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine. I, it includes the pancreas and the gallbladder and the liver, uh, the colon, the large intestine, even the, the rectum and the hemorrhoids. I am considered the expert on these topics. And um, so people tend to come see a gastroenterologist when they're in need of digestive care. So classically, there's certain symptoms that people would have, things like uh, acid reflux or heartburn, trouble swallowing, gas, bloating, nausea, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal discomfort, or cramping. Um, or it could be that one of these organ systems that I mentioned before is not functioning properly. So it could be that the pancreas is not working right or the gallbladder is not working properly. So there's a number of different things. And then, you know, in terms of medical medical conditions that people may have and require a gastroenterologist, it, it could be Things like acid reflux or irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease. These are just a couple of the of the common ones that we that we see. But also, I mean, frankly, anything that involves these types of symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, nausea. Mm -hmm. You're having those symptoms. Typically, if unless it's simple and straightforward, you would end up with a gastroenterologist, and we would help take care of you. The other uh, part of what we do that's really very important is colon cancer screening. Um, so we are responsible for, um, performing the procedures that people require for colon cancer screening. Not that the only way to be screened is through colonoscopy, but colonoscopy is at least in most States performed exclusively by gastroenterologists. There are some exceptions to that. Um, but performed by gastroenterologists or in some cases, surgeons and, um, uh, and this is an important part of our strategy to try to protect ourselves from colon cancer, which is, you know, unfortunately the number two cause of cancer death in America, despite our colonoscopy programs and something that we believe about 5% of Americans will, uh, unfortunately be exposed to during their lifetime. So, you know, so nonetheless, I'm a gastroenterologist and I, you know, I made this decision in 2004 that this is what I wanted to do. It took me 10 years to, from that point forward, accomplish that goal. And I emerged in 2014 and I went into uh, clinical practice. But during this journey, I had my own personal life experiences that started to inform the way that I practice medicine. And specifically, I became sick. I had my own health crisis. Mm -hmm. And this occurred in my early 30s. It was about 10 years ago. So let's just place it at 2012 to keep it easy. Um, although it wasn't just that year, I mean, it kind of was building up and, uh, I needed a way to fix these issues that I had. I, I was 50 pounds overweight. I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, tons of anxiety, extremely low self-esteem, even though I had, you know, won the highest award in my residency program at Northwestern out of 60 brilliant people. I was the chief resident at Northwestern. Mm -hmm. I was on a grant from the NIH. These great things were happening in my professional career, yet um, I was miserable and um, very depressed. So the problem was that 
you know, despite all this great training, not just as a gastroenterologist, but also as an internist, I didn't really have a way to apply my training to fix my own issues. And what I ended up stumbling into um, unexpectedly was something that I knew very little about and I had not been taught on, which was the importance of nutrition. That is amazing to me. I mean, I, I've noted that as well in, in medical training. Well, number one, you're not alone. There are, I, there are many, many people that get into medicine that don't necessarily follow their own advice when it comes to these high stress times of, of training and not scientists as well. It's like you eat bad, you sleep little, um, and that just, you know, compiles into, into other problems. But it is interesting that we don't really teach that much about nutrition in medical school curricula. Um, or really about the importance of the diet and health, which historically, if you go all the way back to, you know, ancient Greece was well known to be an important element of health, um, but somehow been lost in the, in the, in the, in the scheme of all the many, many cycles that you all have to learn um, when you're going through medical school. So, so you're not feeling well, what did you do? Like, what was the, what was the stimulus that kind of made you make a change and, and kind of where did you turn to? I, I know you write a lot about the plant-based diet. Was that kind of, where you shifted? I knew nothing about that, to be to totally mm -hmm. honest with you. Um, I don't know that I even knew the difference between vegetarian and vegan at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anyone who ate that way. But where I was is that my, the rigors of my life as a medical trainee were making uh, fast food and junk food far too perfect in mm -hmm. my life. Because they were cheap, they were quick, they were easy, and they tasted good. And you don't necessarily acknowledge that there's a price that you pay for all that. It just comes later because yeah. your health deteriorates. And so um, I didn't really know how to fix these issues on my own. I tried to exercise my way out of it. It's sort of an early 30s single male mentality where, you know, if I work out enough, I can eat whatever I want. And so I started doing, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, 45 minutes of weight training per day. Plus I would either jump on the treadmill if it was the winter time. I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina at the University of North Carolina for my GI fellowship. And I would either jump on the treadmill and do between a five and a 10K every day, or I would hop in the pool and I would do 50 to hundred laps if it was the summertime. And I could grow faster and stronger and I could swim further, but I actually, I was not losing the gut. Mm -hmm. And then when everything changed was actually just kind of happened through dating actually, where I met a person who, I mean, fast forward to today, this person actually turns out to be my wife and we have three children together. But at the, at the time and in this moment, I had no vision of where this was going. We were just on a first date. Um, but we're out on a date and I, you know, see this person who basically, rather than ordering off the regular menu and getting whatever type of sort of meat oriented dish a person would normally get, she actually asked the waiter if the, if the waiter would just like, you know, get these sides of, of black eyed peas and collards and mashed potatoes and just like make it look nice and put it on a plate. Nice. And so that's what she did. And I was just like, huh, who are you? <laughs> what is this that you are doing? I don't understand this. But what I did understand and what I could very clearly see 
is this person looked amazing and in control of her health and um, was energetic. And we finished the meal and I had not had any alcohol and yet I was hungover and I needed to go home and rest. And she wanted to keep going on the date. And it really just kind of uh, planted a seed and it opened my mind. Maybe the food that I was raised on, uh, food that I loved and food that was a part of my life in a way that worked really well for me, maybe that was the problem. Maybe that was holding me back. And so I, she never asked me to change anything. I don't even think she knew what my diet was. Mm-hmm. But one day on the way home from work, rather than going to Hardee's and getting my usual like $5 thing that gets you 2,500 calories, yeah, <laughs> I diverted home. And I'm not a French trained chef, so I wasn't going to cook this gorgeous meal, but I can use a blender. So I filled up a blender with a bunch of fruits and veggies and I made a smoothie, like a massive smoothie. Mm -hmm. And I drank it and I instantly felt energized. And I felt like there was something that just hit my body that my body was missing. And normally after dinner, I would lay on the couch and, you know, like have a blanket and watch TV and just make groaning noises. <laughs> and yeah. I went to the gym and I smashed a big workout. And I felt so good that this was enough for me to say, I need more of that. And so I came back and I did it again and then again nice. and then again. And then I replaced like the bad stuff in my coffee with black coffee. And then I replaced the soda with kombucha. And I started finding simple substitutions that worked for me and they were sustainable. And yet my health started to fall into alignment without any effort. And this um, was so powerful in my life. Like I felt like I got my life back. And it was so powerful that if you are a medical doctor who cares and you sit in a room from these people who are suffering and you look them in the eye and you know that they need your help, when you discover something that is so powerful that it tr transforms your own life, there is no denying it from that point forward. Even if the system will not support you, even if the system will not pay you, even if the system will not educate you, you know that this is the right way yeah. and you have to make it happen. And so that's, that's kind of where I was. And this is what ultimately led to all of the things in my life that have happened. It's amazing. And so this, from a personal perspective, this led to weight loss for you. And what happened with regards to your other like measures of health with inflammation or cholesterol, or like, did you see changes at the kind of biochemistry side as well? My energy levels were the first thing to change. I instantly felt energized. Uh, next thing I noticed is that there were um, superficial changes to my body that took place. So like my skin cleared up, my hair started to get thicker. Uh, my skin, just if you looked at me, I looked more vibrant, more colorful, um, mm -hmm. less sort of shades of gray. And uh, I know that sounds weird, but I really, that's the way I would describe Pallid. it. Pallid, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And um, the weight didn't melt off my body instantly. This was not like a one week, 50 pound weight loss. <laughs> yeah, I love those things that promise that in the, in the store. Those are hilarious. But um, this was more like I was eating food that I was enjoying and I was eating until I was full and I never once counted calories or did macros or anything of that variety, nor restricted at any point. And next thing you know, like over the course of time, I lost 35 pounds um, and I was like about 205 pounds and my high school weight was 190. And ultimately at that point I was pescatarian and I don't think that pescatarian is necessarily an unhealthy diet, um, but I think my version of it was still very, very much emphasizing dairy and eggs in a very big way. And so uh, I made the decision that I was going to like, just kind of go for it and mm -hmm. try dropping all of these things and going completely plant-based. And when I did that, I actually got back to my high school weight and I was like probably 36 or 37 years old. First time that I got back to it. Wow. So, um, and while this is all happening, by the way, this is over the course of years. Yeah. Um, so there was a buildup that took place. I don't want to create false promises or quick fixes. Yeah. I don't think about that, but. Lasting change takes time. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, sustainable choices are way underrated. You know, uh, healthy habits are where the money is at. If you want a shortcut, that's the best you're going to do is a healthy habit. And um, so, you know, anyway, a as these health benefits were accumulating and yes, I did. My cholesterol went back to normal, completely normalized. Uh, my blood pressure completely normalized. I no longer required uh, blood pressure pills. And I um, I felt compelled to take this into the clinic because, again, I, I felt like if this can do this for me, then what about these people that have irritable bowel syndrome or ulcerative colitis or acid reflux? Yeah. And so I would spend my nights voraciously consuming nutritional research and studying. And then I would take it into the clinic the next day with my patients and we would work together trying to learn from one another and trying to figure it out. And this um, experience accumulated over years to the point that I was witnessing what I would describe as, you know, transformations just as powerful as what I experienced, but in a person's own unique way. And it got to be... 2016 and I felt like it's not enough for me to be in a private setting behind a closed door and the only people who are receiving this are the people who happen to come in and see me as a gastroenterologist I felt like the world deserves to hear this story and that led me to start my social media my Instagram account in 2016 to be completely frank no one really cared for a very long time <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's that's the situation for most of us. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I include that as a message of perseverance, and not yeah, exactly, because you're, you're very successful now with it. So, yeah, and it's not to toot my own horn. It's really more so to say to people who, if you believe in something, if you're passionate about something, you should follow your passion and ignore everything else. So, because yeah. that that ultimately can take you places that you don't expect. So, in 2018, I had a podcast that went viral. Um, with my friend Simon Hill from Plant Proof. Now it's called The Proof. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, it felt like, wow, people are freaking out. There's an energy here. 
I need to do something. I need to bottle this up. I can't just let it disappear. And I felt that the best way to communicate, I still believe the best way to communicate is through a book. Because I can spend a year of my life as a trained professional meticulously uh, crafting my words. And for, you know, my first book you can buy for $14 or you can get it at the library. And that is literally a year of my life that goes into those pages and you can consume it in a weekend and potentially change your life. That's great. Well, and I know you also created a lot of um, kind of teaching resources and, and can you talk about that a little bit on your website? And I, I also, before we jump into that though too, I want to just put this out there for all the listeners is if you do make a decision to make a major shift in your diet, it's really important that you do talk to your doctor because, you know, there are certain things that you may need to supplement your diet. I'm thinking particularly of B12, right? If you're, if you're cutting meat and dairy out completely, you need to think about, you know, and I'm sure you cover that in your, in your books as well, but do you want to speak about that a little bit before we move on to the topic of some of your other educational materials? Well, I think, I think that, um, you know, part of what my mission is, and I'm not clearly, I'm not the only person out there doing this. Um, part of my mission is to try to educate and empower people so that they can have a better experience and achieve better health. And it's mm-hmm. not intended in any way to be an independent thing. You read my book and pretend that I'm your doctor. And I'm actually yeah. very upfront with my books and saying that, you know, this is about empowering yourself with further knowledge so that you can um, ask the right questions and have a better experience within the limitations of this very limited healthcare system that we have. And also to understand how to properly build a team and find the right people that you can surround yourself with in order to be successful and be the best version of yourself. So I don't think it's an independent thing. You know, um, a B- B12 supplementation is something that is discussed in, in my books, but that's also mm-hmm. something that, you know, you, you can make a very strong argument that B12 supplementation, almost everyone should be supplementing B12 because the the rate of deficiency or borderline deficiency among omnivores is 40%. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I, I do think though, that when we, what, um, troubles me that I often see is when people get some sort of, um, superficial conception of a dietary idea and they whip their body into that diet and, then they suffer health consequences because the body is not designed to be whipped. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's designed to be gently um, adapted and adjusted into something. And so I'm more of the belief that rather than saying, hey, this is the only path to being a healthy human, uh, I would prefer to be very upfront and honest and say that there are many different paths that can lead you to be a healthy human. But through empowerment and education, I can help you to create the proper path for you that can get you there. That's what I want to do. That's great. That's great. Um, so with, with regards to your teaching, um, what can you tell us about that and kind of what resources are out there for listeners if, if they're interested in learning more beyond the books? Yeah, well, so, you know, for me, um, a, a, as I literally just said, it, it's, this is about empowering people. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different ways that that can be done. And so I, I am in the market of trying to create different agi- avenues for education so that people can find what works for them. And not every single thing is uh, pre-required for every single human. Um, yeah. 
And there are also many different ways to approach it. And so, you know, as I sort of look at the landscape of what I've created, first of all, this is something that has been built over six years. So it's been a lot of, uh, a lot of great effort for me to create all of this material. I have close to a thousand Instagram posts. Every single one is intended for education. If you sit down and spend time rather than waiting for me to show up in your feed, if you literally just start going through my posts, mm -hmm. perhaps tackle 10 of them a day, you would learn a lot. And that's completely free. That's um, I consider these podcasts to be free forums of education. And mm -hmm. so I don't know exactly how many podcasts I've record, recorded, but it's clearly hundreds. And so that's hundreds of hours of material where there's conversations that can be consumed and, you know, sort of help to guide you and learn more about these things. And then there's my books. You know, I spend a year writing a book. I am not uh, upset or disappointed in any way if you don't purchase my book and you instead borrow it from the library. That to me, the purpose of writing the book is not the fact that I get some trivial amount of money from an individual purchase. People don't realize how little an author will get. It's very, very little. Um, you know, the purpose of writing the book is not that trivial amount of money. The purpose of writing a book is that I'm passionate about what I'm talking about and I really care. And I want to try to use this information in my education and my experience to, to help people. And if you give me your time and you give me your attention, you have given me something that's far more valuable to me than a dollar or a dollar and yeah. 50 cents, right? So, and that's the way that I feel about it. Um, so all of those things are on the table and they're completely free. That's you know, great. Aside from the fact that you have to like have a phone to log onto Instagram or something like that, but yeah. they're completely free. And that's actually probably where I've spent the vast majority of my time. But then I also have things that I've produced that are educational courses and they're structured and it's for the person who has an interest in taking a deeper dive into a topic and i i do my best you know creating courses is not just the time that i put into it actually is quite expensive and people don't realize that it can like you know my big course i mean it's basically like a six-figure bill that i've invested more than six figures into building this course yeah. um so they're quite expensive to create, and that's why you have to charge for people to do them, and you don't know how many people will show up. But you know, I have my big course that's seven weeks. That's intended to be like an immersive foundational experience for people that really want to expand their knowledge on the topic of gut health. But then I have like very small, discrete courses where, like, for example, if you have constipation, there's a constipation course that I created that I get great feedback. And, um, and then sometimes I do things that are either completely free. Like I have, uh, I have challenges that are completely free. I have webinars and materials on my website that are completely free, or I'll do things that are, you know, less expensive, like $30, something like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, the point is I'm trying to create an infrastructure for education. Um, it has to be something that, uh, like I'm not going to go and take a loan and, yeah. <laughs> uh, just lose money on it. Right. So it has to be something that kind of works from that perspective. But, you know, but that being said, I'm trying to make it work for other people. And, you know, what I ultimately look at is um, do I get messages from people who say that I'm making a positive impact in their life? The answer is yes. And that's what I really care about. And that's what I value. That's what gets me excited to do this work and continue to do this work. That's great.
Well, I mean, it's a fabulous story. I love, I love learning about how you got to this and the kind of things that you're creating in terms of content. Um, and the second part of the show, I thought it might be interesting to our listeners to get into some more, maybe some case studies or examples that you'd like to highlight about the influence that certain foods have on our health and how we feel. So you, you mentioned an example of how you felt almost hungover from eating maybe a high fat kind of not non-healthy um, meal. Can you walk us through, like, what are some of the things that make us feel bad after eating? I'm thinking maybe loose stool or diarrhea or bloating, um, constipation, like, what are some of the things that lead to that? How can we look out for those signs? And how do we go about making corrections in our diet? How do we learn to read those signs and fix that? Like, are there, are there some simple fixes that we could start with on this journey? Well, let's start with acknowledging the fact that we all have bad days or bad meals. Um, and there can mm -hmm. be a number of different factors that feed into that. So it's not just that it's a Mexican restaurant. It might be that it's a Mexican restaurant and also you had alcohol and also... Uh, you know, you didn't get a good night's rest the night before, right? Yeah. Or something of that variety. So there's a lot of different factors that can all feed into how we ultimately feel. And the occasional one-off, we all have that, myself included. Mm -hmm. But you know, really what we're getting at here is, is there something that's more of an ongoing health-related issue? And that to me implies chronicity, meaning that it's not necessarily every minute of every day, but it is something that's recurring enough that you've noticed it. You've noticed it and you've yeah. recognized that there's an issue. And if you've noticed it, then that probably means that it's having a negative effect on your quality of life. And if it's negatively affecting your quality of life, then regardless of whether it's a significant threat to your long-term health or not, it's still a health-related issue that should be addressed because you deserve to feel better. Yeah. And there's so many ways that this could manifest. Um and, you know, of course, my expertise is within the digestive system. And so many of the symptoms that I was mentioning earlier of, you know, heartburn or gas and gas and bloating is sort of a classic one. Um, mm -hmm. Nausea, you know, cramping pain, uh, discomfort, diarrhea, constipation. These are all potential manifestations of digestive distress where your body is struggling with digestion. But I would argue that fatigue is extremely common. Most doctors don't know what to make of fatigue. But a lot of patients experience it and that's a real thing and it's negatively affecting their quality of life. So we should acknowledge that. Um, and so, you know, things of this variety, I mean, there's a many different sort of ways in which our, our food could, could be affecting us. That's not necessarily the positive, uplifting, energizing uh, experience that I wish that we would all have. And why is that? Well, that's a very complicated question. Um, it would be unfair for me to, you know, oversimplify to the point of making it sound like there's this one thing. Yeah, of course. And, you know, to be completely upfront and honest, um, because of my position being plant-based and advocating for plant-based, I often feel that people, they feel like my entire platform is about being anti-meat. Yet, I actually think that there's many ways to be healthy. And what I describe is diets that may include some meat, but just not the way that we're currently doing it. Yeah, where the meat's kind of the primary um, element of many meals. Well, I think that, you know, uh, a healthy diet achieves balance. There's mm -hmm. balance within the body. We are not um, 
shoehorning or excessively emphasizing certain things. And if you look at the average American's diet today, to answer your question, what is the problem? This is where I would have to start is looking at what is the average American eating? And where we are right now is that the average American's diet is 60% calories come from ultra processed foods. Mm -hmm. That's problematic. I have, I can expand on that if you want me to in a moment, but I find that to be problematic that the majority of our calories are coming from ultra processed foods. And 30% of our calories come from animal products. So like to put a number to that, the average American consumes 220 pounds of meat on a yearly basis. And yet the average American weighs 170 pounds. So they are eating their body weight plus the body weight of a five-year-old in meat wow. on a yearly basis. Meat. That to me is not balance, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, That's yeah. It. So uh, when, you know, we talk about these things, I think that context is important because a push is not intended to be an all or nothing thing. A push is intended to be recalibrating and rebalancing. And the last category that's left are the whole foods that come from plants. And that is, you know, if you do the math, we're left with 10%. Yeah. And in that 10%, French fries count. And that's our number one plant. French fries. <laughs> wow. So um, it's no surprise that we, here we are. And with this particular dietary pattern, we have a situation where the average woman is consuming about 15 and a half grams of fiber per day when the minimal recommended amount is 25. Anything less than 25 is deficient. Mm. The average man is consuming 18 grams of dietary fiber per day. Sounds better than women, but actually it's not because the minimal recommended amount for men is 38 grams of fiber per day. So we are not just deficient in, in dietary fiber. We are wildly deficient and 95% of Americans are not getting the minimal recommended amount of dietary fiber. So what does that mean? Like, how does this level of fiber or lack of fiber in the gut, like what's actually happening in our intestines when we don't have enough fiber? Like what are the consequences of having such a low fiber diet? Well, that's actually an easy question to answer. We are seeing the consequences right now in our society. I mean, it's, it, we, we don't have to speculate on what happens when you put people on a low fiber diet. We are a low fiber diet. That is what we are. Mm. And so it's like the Western diet obese like does that contribute to obesity is that what you're saying or chronic so inflammation if we um we can uh I, I would love to actually follow the path of fiber and what it happens in the body to explain okay. this but before Great. i even start to explain this and fill in the gaps let me just go straight to the punchline mm -hmm. in the largest fiber study to date uh performed by andrew reynolds published in the lancet in uh, 2019, they found that people who consume more dietary fiber are less likely to have a heart attack, less likely to die of heart disease. That by the way is our number one killer, less likely to have breast cancer, colon cancer, esophageal cancer, less likely to die of cancer. That is our number two killer, less likely to have a stroke. That is our number five killer. 
and less likely to be diagnosed with diabetes, which is our number seven killer. They, in randomized controlled trials, this is the same study, by the way, that's uh, what we call a, a systematic review and meta-analysis, where basically they're uh, aggregating all of the data on fiber so that we're removing any bias so that I can't cherry pick what I believe to be true and ignore yeah. the other stuff, but instead we're aggregating all the data. So even the studies that say the fiber is worthless are in there. Mm -hmm. And um, in randomized controlled trials, people who consume more dietary fiber, they lose weight, they have lower blood pressure, they have lower cholesterol, and there was a trend towards improvement of their diabetes. And so now this is one study. I could also, by the way, point you towards studies that show that dietary fiber is protective against chronic kidney disease, against Alzheimer's, against influenza and pneumonia and COVID-19. And I have just in this moment listed seven of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. Now, it's hard yeah. to make a dietary modification that's going to reduce your risk of having an accident. I don't think we can do that, right? But of the things that are unable to our diet, dietary fiber has data to demonstrate that it could be protective for us. So here we are, and this is the problem. And um, so... What happens when we consume fiber? Well, first of all, fiber, so that people understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Fiber is a complex carbohydrate. So it's a carb. Like when we say carbs are bad, well, fiber is good and fiber is a carb. <laughs> um, and you will find dietary fiber in all plants. So every single fruit and vegetable and seed and nut and legume and whole grain, they have dietary fiber. Mushrooms also have dietary fiber, and I mentioned that just for the purists because mushrooms technically are not plants, but they do have fiber. So that's an um, interesting point to bring up, like that fiber is in so many plants because we think of just the way that things are marketed. We think about like you know whole whole wheat or kind of whole grain breads is like the best, or whole grain is being like a, a, a strong source of fiber. But the fact is that you know dietary fibers in lots of different plant foods for. So for any of those that have gluten intolerance, there are lots of other sources of fiber that they can tap into. Well, that whole context of saying whole grain is better is because what they're actually selling you is something that's closer to the native form of the food yeah. as opposed to the ultra processed food, which is the white bread, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. So yeah. They're, they're celebrating that they have intervened less on a natural <laughs> food and perhaps selling it at a higher price, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, dietary fiber, it's not hard to find. All plants, all plants mm -hmm. plus mushrooms have dietary fiber. And when you consume these foods, these plants, the fiber, it um, enters into the mouth, you chew it, and it goes down into the intestines, and then it passes through about 15 feet of small intestine. And what you have to understand is that you as a human being, you don't actually have the ability to break down and digest fiber independently. So we lack the enzymes as humans to break down fiber. But what's interesting is that we may not have those enzymes, but our gut microbes, they do. In fact, they have them in spades. So a um, single cellular bacteria could have hundreds of enzymes to break down fiber that just it's a one cell bacteria and it has hundreds of Amazing. enzymes yeah um and if you uh look at the collective of the entire 
community of microbes, which we would call the microbiome. The microbiome, by the way, is most concentrated in in inside your large intestine. This is the main place that you will find your microbiome. Um, there's 38 trillion microbes there. The collective of all of these different microbes, we believe is about 60,000 unique digestive enzymes. So, and us humans, we don't have any to break down fiber, but these microbes, they wow. do. So they take care of that for us. We have outsourced dietary fiber uh, digestion to the microbes. The fiber enters into the colon. The microbes get into a feeding frenzy because they're not just digesting it, they're actually consuming it. This is their food. They need energy just like us. Mm -hmm. And fiber is their preferred source of energy. So when they consume it, they grow stronger. You actually can empower your gut microbes by eating foods that are high in fiber. This is actually a, an expression or a term that has been emerging called prebiotic. And so prebiotic basically means food for the microbes that produces benefits to humans. Fiber is not the only prebiotic, but it is the classic prebiotic. Nice. And so when they consume this fiber, the fiber doesn't just come out the other end as a bowel movement. Some of it does, but the part that's being consumed, it actually undergoes transformation and it stops being fiber and it turns into the most healing, most anti-inflammatory compound I have discovered in my 20 years of study in medicine, which are the short chain fatty acids, mm. butyrate, acetate, propionate. And these three short chain fatty acids, when we think about what I had mentioned earlier about reducing our risk of heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, chronic kidney disease, these different infections, I can walk you through one by one how the short chain fatty acids are the part that are responsible for that. And so here we are, and 95% of Americans are deficient in fiber. And we know that fiber is deficient against seven of the top 10 causes of death. And the explanation and the reason why is because of this interaction between fiber and your gut microbiome. And I, I don't really, to be completely honest with you, understand why it requires me as a lone gastroenterologist in Charleston, South Carolina, to write a book about it. Why is our news agencies, why are they not shouting this from the hilltops on a nightly basis if this is something that could have such a positive impact? on public health is to quite simply address this fiber deficiency for people. That's, that's fabulous. I mean, what do you think the barriers are? I, I often think about transmission of knowledge that people don't necessarily know how to cook something that's not already prepackaged and ready for the microwave or oven. Like, is it because it takes additional skill to access dietary fiber through like learning how to cook fresh vegetables? Or is it as simple as just throwing more things into like a Vitamix, right? And making that fiber, you know, full smoothie. What have you learned from your patients? Like what are the, what are the barriers to getting people to transition to a more fiber enriched diet? I think there's, there's a lot of barriers. This is, there's, it's not a simple answer to this, to be completely honest with you. Yeah. Part of this is knowledge. That's mm -hmm. where I come in. Uh, first of all, people need to understand how powerful and important this is. That was my first book. That was Fiber Field. The Fiber Field was why you should care about fiber. Yeah. And my second book was addressing the how. 
Like, how do we cook delicious food? Food that any human being in their right mind would say, this is great and I'm enjoying this and I can actually do this. You don't have to be a French chef to create this food. You know, that's kind of what we need to even get the ball in play and start to get it rolling. But we also need to um, understand that people love their current diet. So the level of motivation that we create for them has to be like really supreme for them to care yeah. enough to say that I'm willing to, I'm willing to give up on the food that I actually love. Like I don't, you know, first of all, it, in no way am I over here casting stones because 10 years ago I was 5% plant-based, right? Yeah. So, and that's a big part of my platform is creating that understanding that I'm not here to judge. And I'm not here to tell you that you have to be something. I'm here to encourage you and to support you and to educate you. And so, but like, it's scary for people. If they've never eaten this way, they don't even know, like what's, many times people will message me, what's one meal? And I'm like, well, if you toast sourdough and you put an avocado on top of it, it's a delicious meal. <laughs> and yeah. It's not hard, but people, it's not on their radar. So they don't think like that. Um, I also think, to be completely frank, that um, because there's a lack of education, there's also a lack of motivation. So in my medical practice previously, we would have drug reps who would bring food in. And if they brought in chicken fingers, it disappeared. But yeah. if they brought in food trying to make Dr. B happy because Dr. B eats differently than everyone the food honestly would not be consumed and my employees would actually leave to go out and buy food. They would rather go out and spend their money to buy wow. food and eat the food that is being given to them for free, which happens to be, you know, plant-based. So, yeah. um, and then the last thing is, I, I still think this last thing is actually an educational thing, but it, it's access. Um, but I feel that the conversation on access it's important for people to understand the foundation of a plant-based diet. And when I, by the way, when I say plant-based, I don't mean exclusively plant-based. I'm actually being a very inclusive thing, which is that mm -hmm. to me, a plant-based diet is like you get the majority of your calories from plants. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a hundred percent could be 70, but you're getting the majority of your calories from plants. So, um, to me, the foundation of a plant-based diet, is whole grains and legumes. And if you go, there's these five places on the planet that perhaps your listeners know of, but just in case, let me describe. They're called the blue zones. Mm -hmm. And they are the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, Ikaria, Greece, uh, Okinawa, Japan. And then the fifth one is actually right here in our country, which is Loma Linda, California. And these five places they have discovered, it's actually my friend, Dan Butner, who discovered that there are people who are living to be a hundred years old at a rate that is off the charts. Mm. And they're not just living older, but they're living with more vigor, with more health. Yeah. They are health active. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They're active in their nineties, still like hanging out with their friends and holding hands with someone they love and dancing. Right. Yeah. And, um, What's interesting is these five places clearly are geographically independent. They're different cultures, yet they're all consuming their own version of the same basic diet, 
which is that most of their calories come from whole grains and legumes. So like it, it could be black beans in Costa Rica and it perhaps is like fava beans in Sardinia, right? And soybeans, mm -hmm. you know, soybeans or edamame in Japan. But they're all, that's what they're doing. The backbone yeah. of a plant-based diet is whole grains and legumes. It's not salads. It's not fresh produce. Um, and then I think the last thing that I would say is that this, again, I believe is education is people will often cite like, well, there's, there's food deserts. That is true. There are food deserts and they are a barrier and they make it problematic. Um, but there's a couple things. First of all, food deserts, part of why they occur is because people are not buying the food. So they're not going to stock stuff that they can't sell and then it dies. Mm -hmm. But also part of the solution to food deserts can be non-perishable items that actually can produce fresh produce. And what I'm referring to, I'm being a bit cryptic about it, I apologize, <laughs> are sprouts. Nice. Because you could buy bulk organic seeds and legumes that are not expensive. And when you're ready... You grab, for example, if I were to sprout lentils, the way that it would work is I would grab a half of a cup of organic sprouting lentils and I would soak it for 12 hours. And then twice a day, it would take me about five minutes total to do this per day. Twice a day, I would basically just rinse it and then turn it upside down. And in three days, a half of a cup of lentils becomes four cups of hyper nourishing, completely fresh lentil sprouts with substantially more fiber, more protein, more vitamins, and in many cases, more healing phytochemicals. And so it's like literally having a garden that's on your kitchen counter that is completely accessible because it's not expensive and it doesn't take up space. Like one square foot is all you need to create a garden. You need no soil. That's what's amazing. Yeah, that's great. I love that example. I love that example of you know, but again, it comes back to knowledge, knowing how to how to do that. And I, yeah. but again, at the same time, there's there's so much out there that is freely accessible to us through the internet, where we can um, find instructions on how to how to create those types of things. And you know, um, I often get this from my students. I teach a college course on food and health, and I can't tell you the number of students, like it's it's always at least a third of the class says, this is great. I understand the importance of, of the diet and nutrition in my overall health. And I understand the importance of, you know, um, polyphenols and other compounds from plants that, you know, elicit kind of anti-inflammatory antioxidant um, properties in the body. Um, but I don't know how to cook. <laughs> I was the same way. You know, I, I think my first things I, my, my parents never really taught me how to cook. I learned how to cook, you know, with frozen chicken fingers on a, on a, you know, in a sheet, throwing those into the oven, which I still often burned when I was first learning. And it wasn't until I had the opportunity to go in to Italy for part of my research and learned actually how to cook with fresh materials that, was a game changer for me. I think I think we need to bring back more real cooking schools into our into our curriculum starting in high school. Um just to learn like can you imagine if kids learn how to sprout their own beans in high school and like how how to really go grocery shopping on a budget and make more out of that small budget? I mean, that would be a game changer across the nation. It would be a complete game changer 
and I don't um, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I do want to be pragmatic about this. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And the reason why, <laughs> well, because, because so, but I, I have a solution, but you know, the problem is that um, there is financial, there, there is money involved. Yeah. There are money towards the processed foods. Yeah. These are big businesses. They have a financial goal in mind. And they will align their financial goals with lobbyists to get what they want. It's not a coincidence uh, that 2% of the subsidies that exist within our agricultural system go to fresh produce, 2%. And the majority of the uh, subsidies actually go towards making McDonald's cheaper, frankly. Like the, if we're mm -hmm. just going to distill it down, that's what it is. Like we, we can create $5 value meals and happy meals for $3.99 because we subsidize that with our tax dollars. And I myself have actually lobbied Congress to try to change this, but that's different than money. Me speaking yeah. is different than money. And that's, that's the problem that exists is that there are clearly businesses that don't want sprouting or fresh produce or whole foods to become a thing because at the end of the day, what that means is you're reducing the pie for the ultra processed foods or the meat or whatever it may be that has the money. And you know where the money is because watch your television. Who's paying for commercials? Yeah. Right? It's not complicated. Yeah. That's who's got the money that they're paying for the ads. And let's not pretend that the television station is going to bite the hand that feeds them. Yeah. So, but, um, on the flip side though, uh, what's exciting is that a you know a, a gastroenterologist in Charleston, South Carolina, could like literally start with his phone in 2016 and create a platform that allows that gastroenterologist to disseminate information to people that completely disrupts and upends this structured system that isn't going to do it for you. And that has the potential to empower you, the individual. At the end of the day, this is has to be your choice. You have to be the one to decide. No one else is going to do it for you. But if you receive that information and it motivates you, then that could be transformative in your life. And that's really exciting. Yeah. I love I love that message. Like for all the listeners out there, in the end, it is your choice. And there are amazing resources out there. And just again, share with us your website and your um, your social posts so folks can find out where to go and find things and information on your books because we're just about out of time. I want to make sure we get that back out there for them. I know. And I feel bad because I feel like we could have covered so much more. So I'm sorry. We could talk uh, for hours. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to have you back with your next book. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, my website is theplantfedgut.com. And I have an active email newsletter that people seem to really enjoy. I love science. I think hopefully people can tell that. So when new science emerges that I want to talk about it, it's really hard for me to actually do that on social media because it's such a flippant, quick thing. Um, and there's mm -hmm. nuance. And I hope that people see when they look at my social media that I'm trying, I'm trying to show you that there's nuance. So, but in an email, I can actually you know, explore nuance. And that's, an, that's, so that's my preferred form of communication. 
So you'll find that at theplantfedgut.com. You'll also find a whole bunch of free resources, things that you and I have been talking about this time during this during this hour. Um, my social media. So you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram as the Gut Health MD. And I actually just opened a TikTok account. I don't have I like probably like nine followers, but um, it's the Gut Health MD underscore because someone else took the Gut Health MD. I don't know okay. what they're doing, but I think they're trying to block me. <laughs> Um, so the gut health MD underscore is my TikTok, and, uh, and then finally my books. So my first book was called fiber fuel It came out in May of 2020. It was a New York times bestseller and, and has sold 200,000 copies. And it, it's that, that book is That's the, the congratulations. Book. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, my new book is the fiber fields cookbook and the fiber cookbook cookbook. What I'm excited about is this is really the how, which is that, you know, many of the things that you and I are talking about, like, how do we cook? these types of recipes? How do we sprout? How do we make sourdough bread or fermented foods? Um, how do we heal our gut? How do we overcome food intolerances? Well, that's like exactly what this book is. It's more than recipes. It's 11 chapters. It has two recipe-based protocols uh, designed for healing food intolerances, low FODMAP and low histamine. So, you know, basically I, I wanted to create a book where I could put the tools of gut health on the table and then eat you, the individual person, you get to choose from the from the you know um, uh, friendly confines of your own kitchen how you choose to enact the information that you find in this book. You can do it whatever way makes you happy. That's that's what I want. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Will, for coming on the show. And um, yeah, I, I'm excited to explore more and more of your resources and keep up getting that message out, and especially to Congress, so we can start eliciting uh, more change, even if it's if it's a bit slow. We got to start somewhere. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for having me. And thank you everyone for listening and hanging out with us today. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded today um, on Streamcast. I want to thank our producers to Rob Cohen and to Christine Roth from Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for putting on a great show. Um, you can find this and all of our other episodes at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel. I do want to let you all know that I will be taking a little break um, over the course of July because I'm going to be in the field, in the Balkans, collecting plants, exploring some amazing um, food cultures across Albania and Kosovo. But I will be posting lots of updates from the fields. You can tune in to check those out. I'll have lots of cool things with fermented foods, yogurts, costs, uh, lots of amazing vegetables and wild foods that people are going to be eating that I'm really excited to taste and share with you. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.